The Cuban people rise up against the brutal communist dictatorship in Cuba. Mark Lamont Hill told me that all white people are racist. And Dr. Fauci says Americans who decline to get the COVID vaccine are ideologically rigid. I'm Liz Wheeler. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. The eyes of all the world are focused right now on Cuba, and I'm not surprised. The videos of what's happening right now in Cuba are striking. We're going to get to that in one second, but first I want to talk about ExpressVPN. There are a lot of things we search for online that aren't anybody else's business. And I know what you might be thinking, well, if you're searching for something private, use private mode. Go incognito. But that's actually not good enough. I recently learned that incognito mode does not hide your activity from your internet service provider. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. Because not only can internet service providers in the US legally snoop on your information on the websites you visit, they can then sell your information to ad companies. So ExpressVPN gets around that. It's an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so that your internet service provider cannot see the sites you visit. And they keep all your information 100% secure by encrypting it with the most powerful encryption available. So protect your online activity today. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash Liz, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Liz expressvpn.com slash Liz to learn more. Secure yourself online. It's what I do. In Cuba, the people of Cuba are rising up against the brutal dictatorship of the communist regime that rules the island nation. Take a look at this. For those of you who are listening, I'm going to quickly tell you what you're seeing here. People, the Cuban people are taking to the streets, marching in protest. I mean, they're on bikes, they're on foot. They are just turning out en masse into the streets in their nation and take a listen. All right, in this next video, and this one is particularly, this one brought uh, chills to my arms. I got goosebumps watching this. The Cuban people are hoisting the American flag. By the way, after this video ends, I believe that the American flag was quickly taken away from them, according to reports, um, after they did hoist this. But they're chanting Libertad, which obviously means liberty, using the, um, the American symbol of freedom and liberty and justice for all as their inspiration. Take a listen. Meanwhile, the communist regime in Cuba is blocking the internet so that the world, so that you and I do not have access to see all of the Cuban people turning out in the streets. Because of that, we're going to show you even more. Take a look at this. This is how many people are involved in this protest of the regime in Cuba. So the question is, why is the communist regime in Cuba censoring this protest? Why are they shutting down the internet? Why don't they want us to see this? What are the people of Cuba protesting? It's not just the government. It's not just policies that they don't like. It's not just a way of, you know, the people, the electorate having their voices heard. What specifically is being protested here? This is why the internet has been turned off. This is why leftists here in America are ignoring this protest, because the people of Cuba are protesting communism. One word, communism. They have been repressed. They have been oppressed. Their rights have been violated by a communist regime. This is communism that we see. I mean, I have reported before that the healthcare system in Cuba that democratic socialists like to tout as being universal health care paid for by the government that people can use for free, that the truth of that is that there's a two-tier system of health care in Cuba. One for the elites. When the Castros, for example, need health care, they're, they're flown to a different country. Sometimes they're flown to Spain even to get their health care. But when the people of Cuba need, need health care, if they go to a hospital, they have to bring their own blankets. They have to bring their own light bulbs. 
the instruments for surgery are rusty. You will, you can and will die waiting for healthcare in Cuba. This is communism. This is what communism does. Poverty, oppression, death. No free press. Prison for dissidents, those who criticize the government. A closed internet, we're seeing that today. Abysmal healthcare, that's been a, a history of Cuba. And education, again, touted by the American left as education for everyone, free education. The education is in Cuba, the purpose of that is indoctrination. This is what communism does. This is communism. And then the Cuban president right now, Miguel Diaz-Canel, he's the head of the Communist Party. He talks about stopping these protests. He says, quote, we are prepared to do anything. We will do battling in the streets. He said, we are calling on all the revolutionaries in the country, all the communists, to hit the streets wherever there is an effort to produce these provocations. Does he want to listen to the people? Does he want to take what they're saying into account? Does he care about the oppression, the repression, the violation of their fundamental human rights? No, he doesn't care. He just wants to squash them and silence them. Meanwhile, here in the United States, we're Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib. Why are they not speaking out for the people of Cuba? Keep in mind, Bernie Sanders once praised the Castro regime in Cuba, praised the Castro regime. This is what it's wrought. If you wonder why I and so many other conservatives speak out so strongly against the squad, why we speak out so strongly against the Elizabeth Warrens and the Bernie Sanders, why we speak out so strongly against Black Lives Matter movements or the Women's March or critical race theory or what have you, anything that has this communist, socialist, Marxist tenets to it, this is why. Because this is what we're trying to avoid. This is what happens under a communist regime. It's not utopia. It's not fairness for all. It's not equity. It's an equal amount of misery and oppression and death. And that's why Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib are silent. Because they espouse the same politics of the Castro regime. And they have no way to answer for why what's happening in Cuba wouldn't happen here. Because anywhere that you implement communism to the extent that Cuba has, you will have the same results. The Cuban people, by the way, deserve our support. They deserve the support of not only the American people, but the American government. There's a reason they hoist the American flag when they're marching, when they're crying for liberty. Because America is the last best hope of the world. We are supposed to be the beacon of freedom and liberty and justice for all. And if, uh, if people of other nations, especially in repressed nations, want that liberty, they're willing to put their lives on the line for that liberty, we ought to help them. But the Biden administration, what do they do? Well, they claim that the Cuban people just want the COVID vaccine. Yeah, that's what they're calling for in the streets of Cuba, the, the COVID-19 vaccine. I don't think so. They're calling for freedom from communism because communism is killing them. That's the truth of the matter. All right. I want to talk to you for a moment about Nutrafol. Millions of people around the world, millions of men around the world have thinning hair. And when it comes to thinning hair, you no longer have to choose between natural remedies and those that actually work for you. There's a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness without drugs or prescriptions. Gotta love that. Nutrafol is clinically shown to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage without compromise. 21 potent natural ingredients support sex drive, better sleep, and less stress too. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three and six months. Nutrafol is also trusted and recommended by more than 1,500 top doctors. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show at the same time by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code Liz to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Liz. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code Liz. N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Liz. Many of you may have seen this story that uh, went viral over the weekend. I debated Mark Lamont Hill on his television show um, over the weekend, and we were talking about critical race theory. We were talking about, well, what he calls whiteness. And I asked him, based on what he had been saying during this interview on critical race theory, I asked him if he thought 
all white people were racist, since that's what he was implying, this is what he responded. Take a listen. Christopher Rufo, who is one of the leading opponents of critical race theory, he's leading the charge, he's carrying the flag for this. He said, we have successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic, cultural insanities under that brand category. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. When you hear, it sounds like what Chris predicted is what's happening in this conversation, right? That we're taking anything that we don't like, anything that raises anxieties of Americans, we're dumping it into a single pile and saying that's critical race theory and everybody should be, should be afraid of it. It feels very similar to what we did with liberation theology eight years ago when we were trying to scare people about the Obamas or 12 years ago. It feels very much like a moral panic uh, designed to get people into poll into polls to vote against you know particular political interests than it does an actual intellectual critique because in many ways this feels like a solution in search of a problem. I, I still don't see the revolution. Most critical race theorists that I know, in fact, everyone that I've read, they're not calling for Marxist revolution. They're not calling for overthrowing capitalism. They're, they're calling for reforming markets. They're calling for challenging institutions, for reimagining society. Uh, I, I wish they were as radical as you say they are. But I, I'd like to get your take on that Rufo quote. For you know, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. Uh, Rufo says, dump sure. everything in. Do you agree? Sure. So I, I think it's important, again, not to talk in generalizations and not to be vague here, to give specific examples so that nothing is misunderstood. So let's talk about a tenet of critical race theory that's being taught right now in an Evanston school district in the state of Illinois. It's a book called Not My Idea, a book about whiteness. And in this book, um, white people are portrayed as the devil, the devil actually tempting children with so-called whiteness. And it's portraying, it's obviously racist, it's portraying everyone who has a certain color of skin as being the devil. This, this book is not only taught to kindergartners, by the way, in the state of Illinois, it's taught to fourth and fifth graders in the state of Pennsylvania. And Mark, honestly, it doesn't matter what you want to call this. It's and You can call it critical race theory because it's the outgrowth of critical race theory. You can call it racialism because it's a tool to implement Marxism. Or you can call it abject racism, theory? which is exactly what it is. That's what but parents what, don't want in our country. Makes, and this, this is my question. Do you think that that's appropriate theory? to that's teach in American schools? I mean, that's a wonderful question. Do you think I'm that's appropriate to, to teach in schools? Say, yeah, I, no, I don't think it's appropriate to teach in schools, nor do I think it's appropriate to just call it critical race theory. And even you yourself are implicitly conceding that point. You're saying, well, you can call it critical race theory, you can call it racialism. I could call it a hand mirror, but it doesn't make it one, right? So just because we throw labels <laughs> on things doesn't make it that thing. It, it, it would be like if I went to every KKK rally and said, you know well, what? I, let, let me explain. What let me, let me explain. That's Republican doctrinism. That's MAGA. That's this. That's we, you would you'd be very frustrated with that. And you would say that it's an inaccurate assessment. That that book, that tradition right. that you're talking about has in, in absolutely this case, no though, root In this case, in that's not a good analogy theory. because critical theory. So going back to critical theory, critical theory teaches that there's no objective truth, right? That there's just competing narratives. And they teach that the workers aren't going to, the worker class isn't going to rise up against the elite class to overthrow the government to implement Marxism. Listen listen to what I'm saying. This is an important point that I'm making. This is an important point that I'm making. If you want to have a productive conversation, I think you're going to be interested in this. I am interested in it, but what I'm asking you is- But Herbert Marcuse identified racial minorities in America- Herbert Marcuse, a critical race theory scholar, Marcuse, as you know, identified racial minorities in the United Herbert States is not a critical race as scholar. the vanguard, the new vanguard, about? the new worker to usher in a Marxist revolution. To do this, to do this, you have to use this racialism, use this racial divide as a tool to paint all white people as inherently racist. Do you, I mean, do you believe that? Do you believe all white people are inherently racist? <sighs> so... I don't know if you're backing me into a corner with that question, but yes, I, I do. Uh, I do believe that all white people are at some level, at the unconscious level, connected to racism. So let's get one thing clear here. Believing that all white people are racist is a racist ideology. Is Mark Lamont Hill a racist? I have no idea, but he is espousing a racist ideology here. Judging an entire group of people based only on the color of their skin is a racist ideology. Obviously, everybody knows that. And by the way, this is the type of racialized Marxism that parents don't want taught to their children in school. This is what we are fighting against. It is a core tenet, by the way, of critical race theory to say that all white people are racist. Critical race theory scholars and adherents, and we're going to differentiate between the two of those 
and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But this is a critical tenet of critical race theory to say that all white people are racist. So let's look at a couple of uh, scholars and adherents who talk about this. Barbara Applebaum is one of them. In her book called Being White, Being Good, she says, and I quote, all white people are racist or complicit by virtue of benefiting from privileges that are not something they can voluntarily renounce, end quote. That's another tenet, by the way, of critical race theory, that if you're racist, you actually can't atone for the sin of racism. You can't overcome that. You are not only inherently involuntarily racist, there's no way that you can ever uh, that you can ever ask for forgiveness or move past that. You, you're just, I guess, condemned like that for life. That's something you will see time and time again from these quote-unquote anti-racists. So that's, that's Barbara Applebaum. Then we have Robin DeAngelo, the author of White Fragility. Uh, she writes in this book, and I quote, white identity is inherently racist. White people do not exist outside the system of white supremacy, end quote. Again, judging all people of one skill and color based purely on the color of their skin is a racist ideology. Yet this woman has made millions and millions of dollars on a so-called anti-racist ideology that's actually racist. Um, okay, maybe that's why, by the way, that her second book is selling abysmally. It's very, very, very failing. It's failing very badly. Um, that's a topic for a different day. Okay, Barbara Applebaum in her book, Being White, Being Good, again, talks about, um, about what she calls white complicity. She goes, quote, the white complicity claim maintains that all whites by virtue of systemic white privilege that is inseparable from white ways of being are implicated in the production and reproduction of systemic racial injustice, end quote. So as you can see, this is a critical part of critical race theory to teach that if you are white, it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter um, how you act, it doesn't matter the content of your character, it doesn't matter how you treat others, it doesn't matter if you advocate for equality under the law, it doesn't matter if you're a good person, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian, it doesn't matter if you love your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't matter if you're colorblind, it doesn't matter anything, really. It, the only thing that matters is the pigment of your skin. The, color, the amount of melanin in your skin is all that matters to these people. And if it is white, then you are racist and there's nothing that you can do about it. So when Mark Lamont Hill says that all white people are racist, it doesn't surprise me that he said that. That's why I asked him because I thought that he would say that or perhaps try to deny it because it's so extreme. He didn't try to deny it. He does deny that he is a critical race theory adherent. And I doubt that, to be honest. I do. I'd like to talk with him further about that. Um, but I, I do want to talk about one thing, one interesting thing that came from this interview. I think it's very important to note the difference between teaching critical race theory as an abstract concept versus applying the tenets of critical race theory to school curricula, for example, that's being taught to our children. This is basically, this is the core of, of Mark Lamont Hill's argument, right? That it, critical race theory is not being taught in K-12 schools because you don't look at the heading of the chapter that's being taught to kids, and it's not called critical race theory, so it's not being taught as an abstract concept. Well, okay, it's not being taught as an abstract concept. It's not being taught at the law school level. They're not saying this is critical race theory. No, they're taking critical race theory, and they're applying the tenets of it to other curricula. So what Mark Lamont Hill does when he engages in this tactic, it's basically a sleight of hand, a critical race theory sleight of hand. And we're seeing it not just from Hill, but from the left. Um, and it does debunk this idea that they're not teaching critical race theory in schools. I said on Hill's show that it doesn't actually matter what you call it. You can call it critical race theory. You can call it racialism. You can call it racism because it's all the same thing. But that's what Hill either doesn't seem to uh, want to understand or doesn't understand. I think he does. I think it's just a sleight of hand because semantics is always the game with the left. But there is a difference between teaching critical race theory as an abstract concept versus applying the tenets of critical race theory to curricula being taught to children in public school. Obviously, the latter is not going to name it critical race theory when they're applying it to a curricula. That's why the example that I used when I was talking to Mark Lamont Hill, the book titled Not My Idea, a book about whiteness that uh, portrays all white people as the devil. In fact, the devil tempts children with uh, promises of whiteness and the benefits of whiteness, I guess in exchange for selling their souls is the implication there. But that's why that book is critical race theory. It's the tenets of critical race theory, but it doesn't say, hey kids, this is critical race theory because it's not teaching the theory abstractly. It's applying the tenets to essentially culture and society through the indoctrination of children. So in, in, in a sense, it would be similar to if you taught Christianity by saying Christianity is a monotheistic religion 
versus if you taught the tenets of the Christian religion, like Jesus loves you and died for your sins so that you can live with him in heaven forever, right? The first being the concept of the religion, the second being the application of the tenets of the doctrine. And that's that's what we're seeing. That's what we're seeing in, um, in the defense from the left of, well, not the defense so much, as that's what we're seeing in the narrative of the left when they deny that critical race theory is being taught in schools. They're saying, well, I, it's not titled critical race theory. Well, sure, but the tenets are critical race theory. So what Mark Lamont Hill specifically does is he defends essentially the tenets of critical race theory, and that's what's taught in schools. Um, even adherents, not necessarily the scholars who write about the theory, but the adherents, they often preach the tenets, but not the concept itself. Really, really important to note, and if you're ever engaging with a critical race theory adherent, that's really something to keep in mind to bring up if they're denying that what they're talking about is critical race theory. Because as Chris Rufo has uh, told us many times, when you when you make this concept toxic, and it's easy to make toxic because it is toxic, you just have to communicate the toxicity, they're not going to want to embrace it. So they're going to, the, the people who adhere to it are going to pretend that it's something else because they don't want to embrace toxicity. Um, that's also why Marxists don't admit that they're staging a revolution. So as you heard during this interview, Mark Lamont Hill repeatedly asked me to name a critical race theory scholar who said that they were staging a Marxist revolution. And it's a stupid question because what I should have said just to shut it down in answer to his question is I should have said, well, it's a tenet of Marxism not to admit that you're trying to stage a revolution. So instead, we have to look at actions, not words, because actions speak louder than words. And the actions of these folks these adherents to critical race theory show that they are staging a revolution by tearing down our institutions in our nation, even using violence. That is revolutionary. So actions speak louder than words, and it's a tenet of Marxism not to admit that you're staging a, re a revolution. So this all makes sense, right? Because remember, Mark Lamont Hill claims that he is not a critical race theory adherent, but in a sense, he practices critical race theory. Because he's even said before that the Black Lives Matter riots, the violent riots, the ones that we saw where buildings were on fire, where um, these thugs were arsonists, essentially. They were destroying cities, destroying Black-owned businesses, um, tearing apart, looting, rioting. He's even said that violence, like tearing up a store, he calls it the spectacle of violence. He's okay with it because it's making a point that he thinks is necessary about our institutions, which he wants to be torn down. Now, the phrase that he will use, he will not say, I want to tear down these institutions or I want to rebuild them in a Marxist uh, in a Marxist way of, along the Marxist doctrine. No, he uses a phrase uh, as follows. He calls it reimagining society. Reimagining society is what he says. But make no mistake, the phrase reimagining society is just a weirdo euphemistic way of talking about revolutionary structural change. And here's my question. How does such an entire fundamental structure, this reimagining, how does it happen? Well, if it happens all at once, and if it happens by first tearing down our institutions, even using violence if necessary, yeah, I would call that a revolution. Now, again, Hill, to his credit, I want to, or perhaps it's not to his credit, perhaps it's just part of his narrative and uh, his, his verbal sleight of hand, but I do want to read a tweet that he issued in the wake of this interview. He said, and I quote, I'm neither a Marxist nor a critical race theorist. I do, however, think that both lend important insights that we should take seriously. Instead of demonizing, misrepresenting, or making them the subject of moral panic, let's actually listen and learn, end quote. Absolutely not. We should not listen and learn to critical race theorists and Marxists. They're evil, period. In fact, this is why it's important to define what critical race theory is, not only so that they can't deny it, but so that we recognize it when it's being applied, not just studied abstractly in college. Because what Mark Lamont Hill is doing is he's denying being a Marxist, denying being a critical race theorist, yet he's embracing the tenets of both. So let's define critical race theory here. And this is the definition of critical race theory that I have written. Critical race theory is a neo-Marxist theory that posits that there's no objective truth, that everything is simply a competing political narrative, that Karl Marx's vision of a worker-led revolution is not going to happen. Why? Because when the workers adhere to the social structures and beliefs of the ruling class, that serves as an impediment to the revolution. So these institutions must be torn down. Since the workers won't do it, the workers are replaced by a new vanguard, racial minorities, 
who have been re-educated in Marxist doctrine that teaches everybody and everything is either oppressed or an oppressor. Inherent to the critical race theory Marxist school of thought on oppressors and oppressed is the doctrine that all people are reduced to their skin color, that all white people are racist, and that everything white people have ever touched is tainted with oppression and privilege. Therefore, it's illegitimate or unjust and worthy of destruction. The only way for the oppressed to be liberated from the oppressors is through relentless criticism of these institutions, ultimately leading to the destruction of government and social institutions so that they can be replaced instead by Marxist institutions. When you understand the definition of critical race theory, you don't have to study it abstractly to see it in practice. I also recently interviewed Chris Rufo, who has uh, been what I would call the warrior in charge of um, the fight against critical race theory in school. And I asked him as well for his definition of critical race theory. And this is what he said, take a listen. Here's a simple definition. And I think actually most critical race theory scholars would agree with it. Uh, critical race theory is an academic discipline uh, that maintains that the United States was founded on white supremacy, capitalist exploitation, uh, and, and, and racial oppression, and that those forces are still at the root of our society today. And critical race theory argues that American institutions such as the Constitution, the legal system, social customs, uh, everything down to individual psychology, uh, preaches these great values like freedom and equality, but in fact are mere smoke screens or mere camouflage for racial domination, uh, which they believe infects and, and, and manifests in every aspect of our society and is the driving force uh, behind all human behavior. I actually spoke with Chris for about 20 minutes and it was a fascinating interview. We talked about uh, everything from the definition of critical race theory to how he got involved to what he thinks the next iteration of the narrative from the left on critical race theory is going to be, which was very interesting. I wish I had time to play all of it here for you today, but I don't. You can find um, you can find the rest of the interview on Locals if you're interested in listening to it. I highly recommend it. Um, speaking of fighting these culture wars, let's talk for a moment about the long game. So we've known for a long time that America is under siege. We are in a war for the soul of our nation. That's very clear. Now, the new president of the Young America's Foundation, Governor Scott Walker, is launching the long game. It's a plan to save America as we know her, from big tech kicking people off of platforms, to cancel culture crazies ruining people's lives, to Democrats grabbing every bit of power they can. We are in the middle of a crisis, and it's time to fight back. The left has been attempting to take over our colleges and campuses for decades now destroying free speech and America's founding values to the point that conservatives can barely even speak on university campuses now. The long game, spearheaded by Governor Scott Walker and my friends over at Young America's Foundation, is a plan to halt the left's attack on America and reinstill the values of freedom and American greatness in our nation's youth. This is a plan to invest in young people, invest in our culture, invest in academia, and hold tyrannical leftists accountable for their actions. To join this important fight to save America and get your free copy of The Long Game, you can go to yaf.org slash long game. So to get your copy of The Long Game, you can go to yaf.org slash long game. So going back to Mark Lamont Hill's idea of reimagining society for a moment, which is, again, a euphemistic term for a Marxist revolution because they want to um, use this complete structural change, this complete destruction of cultural and governmental institutions to reimagine our society into what? Well, obviously, into Marxism. So one of the tenets of Marxism is anti-capitalism. And you, you hear this phrase, anti-capitalism, or abolish capitalism. You hear this from people on the modern left, whether it's Mark Lamont Hill is actually included in this, but the Black Lives Matter movement, AOC, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, all of these far left, uh, these far leftists in our country have jumped on this anti-capitalism bandwagon. And I, I want to talk for a second, especially in the wake of what's happening in Cuba, what this would mean for our nation what capitalism has meant for our nation and for people all over the world, by the way, and what it would be like if we abolish capitalism and instead impose Marxism on the people. So to start this conversation, we have to understand the definition of extreme poverty. The definition, this is an international definition of extreme poverty, um, are people who are existing on $2 a day or less. That is the definition of extreme poverty on an international level, living on $2 a day or less. In the year 1920, 94% of the world's population was living in extreme poverty. 94%. Fast forward to 2015, that's 200 years, 
less than 10%, 9.6% of people all around the world are living in extreme poverty. So in the space of 200 years, it went from 94% of the world's population all the way down to 9.6% of the world's population that live in extreme poverty. Now, to put this in a perspective again, this is not just a 200-year leap, right? Between the years 1990 and 2015, one and a quarter billion people around the world escaped extreme poverty. That's 50 million people every single year. If you do the math, that's 138,000 people every single day that escaped extreme poverty. That's pretty incredible to think about. Now, on the flip side of this, on the flip side, and by the way, the reason for that is obvious. This is not some great secret. The reason that all these people uh, escaped extreme poverty was because of the free market, because of the prosperity begot of American capitalism, because of the industrial revolution, because of global free trade, because we exported our material success, our markets all around the world. This is, what, this is what American capitalism has done. Sure, there are greedy individuals. Greed is a sin. You're never going to eradicate sin. But what you can do is you can counterbalance that by giving every single person the opportunity to make of their lives what they want. Give them the opportunity to provide for their families, the opportunity to prosper. Equality under the law so that nobody's discriminated and no one loses that opportunity based on some immutable characteristic. This is American capitalism. This is the American free market. That's on one hand. So then on the other hand, you can contrast this with what's probably the biggest socialist experiment in the history of the world. What I'm talking about is Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward. This is in China in the late 1950s. And what was the result of this? The result of this socialist experiment, 45 million Chinese people died. They were either killed or they died of mass starvation because of socialism. So on this one hand, this capitalist hand, this free market hand, you have more people than ever in the history of the world prospering. Fewer people starving because of the free markets. And then you have, on the socialist side, 45 million people dying because of socialism, mostly because of starvation and oppression and murder. So that's what we're talking about here when we're talking about the tenets of Marxism Now, and I'm talking about current Marxists. I'm talking about critical race theorists. These folks are anti-capitalism. They want to abolish capitalism in favor of what? Do they want, do they want what's happening in Cuba? Do they want what happened in China? Or do they want to continue to help the entire world prosper? I mean, to put this in a different perspective, just within our own country, there was a study done in May of 2019. It was uh, co-authored by University of Chicago professors and Census Bureau researchers. They found that only 0.11% of Americans live in extreme poverty. So in 2015, 9.6% of people around the world lived in extreme poverty. In America, in 2019, 0.11% of Americans live in extreme poverty. That's about 336,000 people total. And don't get me wrong, that's too many. We should continue to work to eradicate all of that. But that's so incredible. And it's so elementary too, just to ask why and how did so many people escape poverty? How did we get to the point in America where such a tiny fractional percentage of people are living on, on under $2 a day? And the answer to that is just the American free market, the industrial revolution, global free trade, capitalism. That's the answer. The capitalism that these Marxists want to abolish. That's that's another reason why critical race theory is so dangerous. It's not just racist, which it is, of course. It doesn't just divide our country, which it does, of course. It demonizes capitalism. It would relegate probably millions, if not hundreds of millions of people back to poverty. And this is another way, by the way, to see that critical race theory adherence differentiated from the scholars, even if they're not the scholars, that they are Marxists because they want to abolish capitalism. Now, authoritarianism is a strain that the world has not been able to fully eradicate no matter how hard we have tried. It pops up here and there and everywhere if left unchecked. And in this moment, this person, thank goodness, is not a member of our government. She is a member of the mainstream media, however. She works for CNN. Her name is Dr. Leanna Wen. She is the former president of Planned Parenthood, although, fun fact, CNN never 
talks about that aspect. They don't say, oh, this is who, this is her credibility. They don't say, they just call her a doctor, a medical advisor, whatever. We'll get to that in a moment. She says that life needs to be as hard as possible for unvaccinated Americans. Take a listen to this. And what we really need to do at this point is to make vaccination the easy choice. It needs to be hard for people to remain unvaccinated. Right now, it's kind of the opposite. It's fine. I mean, it's easy if you're unvaccinated. You can do everything you want to do anyway. But at some point, these mandates by workplaces, by schools, I think it will be important to say, hey, you can opt out. But if you want to opt out, you have to sign these forms. You have to get twice weekly testing. Basically, we need to make getting vaccinated the easy choice. That is what it's going to take for us to actually end the pandemic. Now, remember, this is this is their arguments, these um, extreme vaccination folks, the ones who essentially want to coerce or mandate you into getting the COVID-19 vaccine, who don't want you to have any choice in the matter. Their argument is that it's not about you. You aren't just making that choice about your own safety. You know, they're not saying, well, if you want to be an idiot, be an idiot, in their opinion. No, they're saying that if you don't get vaccinated, it's a threat to other people. In fact, the extreme part of this argument, and I've run into this argument, this is not I mean, it is hyperbolic, but it's not a hyperbolic example. This is a real-life example that I've heard myself. Uh, They say that if you do not get vaccinated and you somehow get sick and pass COVID-19 unknowingly to someone else, and they pass it to someone else who dies from it, that you should be guilty of homicide. That's the actual argument from these folks. But here's the ironic part. And I'm talking about Dr. Leanna Wenton specifically here, which CNN is propping up. The ironic part is when it comes to choices that actually kill another human being, And I'm obviously not talking about that vaccination argument because it is ridiculous. It is absolutely absurd, especially if you're not sick. Maybe you already have immunities. Uh, Maybe you are very low risk. And if you're symptomatic, you're not going to pass it. And if other people are vaccinated, what does it matter anyway? So I'm not talking about getting vaccinated. When it comes to choices that actually kill another human being, I'm talking about abortion in this sense. Leanna Wen is one of the nation's leading proponents of abortion. She's the former head of Planned Parenthood who specializes and monetizes the killing of preborn children. You can't make up this irony. And of course, as I mentioned, CNN, why doesn't CNN bill her like that? Why don't they say what her previous job was, especially such a high profile job? Why isn't she billed as Dr. Leanna Wen, former head of Planned Parenthood? Aren't they proud of her history? They don't seem to be. Regardless, she's an absolute psychopath, especially when it comes to abortion and COVID-19. Unbelievable. We also have Dr. Fauci, who's getting harsher in his rhetoric towards unvaccinated Americans. Um, This is his latest message for those who have made the personal choice to decline the COVID-19 vaccine. Take a listen. This is not complicated. We're not asking anybody to make any political statement one way or another. We're saying try and save your life and that of your family, and that of the community. It's, you know, we have so many things, as you said, so many diseases that I deal with that don't have solutions. It's very frustrating. You don't have a treatment or you don't have a vaccine. Here we have a vaccine that's highly, highly effective in preventing disease and certainly in preventing severe disease and hospitalization. It's easy to get. It's free. And it's readily available. So, you know, you've got to ask, what is the problem? Get over it. Get over this political statement. Just get over it and try and save the lives of yourself and your family. Get over it, he says. Get over it. Now, for most people, remember, the statistics show, the government statistics. This is not something I added up. This is not something I inferred. This is not my personal opinion, all of which are valid, by the way. But in this case, this comes from Fauci's own people. For most people, COVID-19 has nothing to do with saving their own life. So the COVID-19 vaccine has nothing to do with saving their own life either. Because for most people, the risk of dying from COVID-19 is extremely low. So Dr. Fauci is saying, get over it to young men, young healthy men, who according to the CDC are 200 times more likely to suffer myocarditis thanks to the vaccine. Not COVID, the vaccine. Get over it, Fauci says to scores of patients that medical providers see because they're so acutely ill from the vaccine. Not from COVID, from the vaccine. Get over it, Fauci says, to women who've lost their unborn babies during pregnancy after getting the vaccine. Not from COVID, from the vaccine. Get over it, Fauci says. Well, I say to Fauci, get over yourself. 
He says there's no reason not to get vaccinated. He said it's an ideological political thing. So Fauci went on Jake Tapper's show on CNN. This is what he said, and I quote, I mean, it's ideological rigidity. I think there's no reason not to get vaccinated. Why are we having red states and places in the South that are very highly ideological in one way, not wanting to get vaccinations? Vaccinations have nothing to do with politics, end quote. So Fauci says there's no reason to be vaccinated. I dispute that. I disagree. Here are some following reasons. And I've talked to many people about this. I've listened to a lot of people who don't want the vaccine to see what their reasons are. These are some of the reasons. They are personally low risk, whether it of dying from COVID-19 or anything serious happening from COVID-19, whether it's age-related, whether they're healthy, maybe they're low weight. That's reason number one. Then, and these are in no descending order, obviously. This is just a list. They object to the use of aborted fetal cells, which, as we know, in Pfizer and Moderna, they tested the vaccines against fetal cell, aborted fetal cell lines. Uh, the J&J vaccine, actually, it includes in the vaccine aborted fetal cells. People also object to the fact that it's an experimental vaccine. It is not FDA approved. It's under emergency authorization use only. Uh, people are concerned about significant, serious, sometimes fatal, immediate side effects from the vaccine. We have no information on long-term effects from this vaccine. Many people are already had COVID-19 and are therefore naturally immune to the virus, which makes no sense to get a vaccine then. Some people have other health issues that they feel makes it unsafe to get this vaccine. These are the, the probably the most common reasons that I've heard that people decline the COVID-19 vaccine. None of that is anti-vax. Those are perfectly valid reasons. Fauci says there's no good reasons. My question is, why won't public health officials acknowledge the validity of reasons that some people choose not to get vaxxed? Instead, some government institutions are actually mandating it. And what I'm talking about here is I'm talking about the U.S. military. There was an absolutely incredible thread that went viral on Twitter from a naval officer talking about the military's vaccine mandate. And uh, with his permission, I spoke with him. With his permission, I'm going to read you this thread because it is not only striking about the, the mandate itself and the implications of it on individuals in the military, it also shines a light, I'll say, on the political aspect of why this is necessary to force the United States military to undergo this experimental vaccine when, when the vast majority of the military are extremely low risk for anything serious happening from COVID-19. So this is what he says, and I quote, I'm a naval officer who spent the last 15 years on active duty. I'm now potentially facing forcible discharge if I won't submit to taking the COVID vaccine. Here's a thread on just what a scandal that is. All data claims will be linked, he says. Last week, the Army released an ex-ORD executive a, uh, executive order telling its troops to prepare for mandatory vaccination in September. Though he has the authority, it's not likely the president will mandate vaccination without full FDA approval, so look out for that development. The Department of Defense will assuredly move as a whole, meaning all branches will require vaccination on the same schedule. I've spoken to two command chaplains regarding religious exemption. I'm a Christian abortion abolitionist, and cells from aborted children were used in the vaccine's development, and I'm told exemptions won't likely be granted. By the way, on that particular tweet, this is a thread, it's about 36 tweets, but on that particular thread, Twitter posted a warning that said, and I follow, this tweet is misleading. Find out why health officials consider COVID-19 vaccines safe for most people. So they don't, Twitter doesn't like the truth about the fact that yes, aborted fetal cell lines were used in the production of these vaccines. Whatever, okay, we're gonna keep going. Then he says, so my choices are vaccination and forcible discharge. We're just a few years removed from the military's mandatory anthrax vaccine debacle, and here's hoping the administration remembers what a disaster that was. Numerous service members were harmed by a vaccine they did not need. Many more had their careers cut short, were dishonorably discharged, court-martialed, and even imprisoned for their refusal to get the shot. So let's take a look at the rationale behind the forthcoming DOD mandate. By their own accounting, as of two days ago, he writes, 202,567 active duty service members have had COVID, of whom 26 have died. Even following the absurdist definition of a COVID fatality, death for whatever reason within 28 days of a positive RT-PCR test run to 40 plus cycles for military personnel, COVID has a better than 99.987% survival rate. Here's the plain truth. COVID-19 is utterly inconsequential to the military. Don't get me wrong, he says. Our response to it has been anything but inconsequential. We've halted training, destroyed unit cohesion and morale, strapped worthless pieces of cloth over everyone's faces for the last year, and spectacularly destroyed our warfighting readiness in the name of COVID. 
but the pathogen itself is meaningless. I defy you to find a group of 2 million US adults at lower risk from COVID. It does not exist. We are overwhelmingly young, fit, and free of comorbidities. Compared to other causes of death, COVID isn't even on the radar. Between 2006 and 2021, roughly 400 service members died annually of accidents. 300 committed suicide. More than 200 died of random illnesses and injuries. And here's the DOD data. He links to it. He says, over 1,000 service members were killed on motorcycles between 1999 and 2012, yet we still permit their use. Here are the Army data. He links again. Then he says, beyond the laughably insignificant threat posed by COVID to the force, consider the aggressively unintelligent plan to expose the entire force to a drug with zero long-term safety data. What if there are short, mid, and long-term negative effects? Who will defend the nation once the entire force is compromised? There's a reason drug trials always contain a control group. Yet the political appointees and flag and general officers running our military seem perfectly willing to potentially jeopardize 100% of the force in the name of political agreeability. We do a lot of talking about forceful backup and warrior toughness, he says, but you won't hear a word from the cadre of esteemed yes-men motivated by varying mixtures of a desire to get promoted and a fear of being fired. For those who will respond with, but you've taken plenty of vaccines in the military, you're right. I have, he says, and the FDA's multi-year safety data were available for each. Not so with this vaccine. There's a reason we maintain material safety data sheets on all hazardous chemicals on ships. Or would you tell our sailors, you volunteered, now shut up and stick your hand in that acid? Sure hope not. And for those who will invariably respond with George Washington forced all his troops to be inoculated against smallpox, that's cute. Be sure to follow it up with, for every one soldier lost to action with the British, 10 died of disease. Offer me an experimental drug for a pathogen that kills 10 times more soldiers than bullets during time of war, and I might have a different reaction. In sum, he says, we've learned to live with countless threats infinitely more serious than COVID, and all without resorting to extreme measures. COVID, however, is different. This thread, until now, he says, has merely demonstrated how absurd the argument for mandatory vaccination is. From this point on, he says, I'll explain why I think the argument is being made despite its absurdity. Remember, if you can, the 2020 election. We haven't seen anything as contentious or as unusual in a lifetime. Whatever your politics, I genuinely don't care, he says. The fact remains that roughly half of the electorate is convinced that something fishy happened around November 3rd. Whether you believe the theories about ballot manipulation, burst pipes in Atlanta, etc., the interference in elections by several state governors and subsequent top cover from various wings of the judiciary are matters of fact, not opinion. The Constitution clearly states that state legislatures wield authority in conducting elections. Here's the Constitution, he says, and he links to it. Then he continues, still, governors in numerous key states appropriated this authority to themselves, mailing unsolicited ballots, extending deadlines, suspending or weakening signature verification, etc. Various courts nearly universally permitted their usurpations, reasoning that if everyone is sufficiently scared of a virus, the Constitution can be disregarded. Why do I mention the election? Is it sour grapes over who won the White House? Not a chance. I've served under four presidents, he says, and I don't much care who's in the Oval Office. Given the chance, I'll serve under a couple more, whoever they are. One of America's great marvels is the constancy of its military, no matter which party is in power. I mentioned the 2020 election, he says, because it and COVID policy are inextricably intertwined. Despite the glaring unconstitutionality of what happened during the election, if enough of the populace are convinced that the situation really was dire enough to warrant suspending the Constitution without actually saying so, then what happened during the election can be permitted. This position, however, cannot withstand dissent. It requires absolute fealty, particularly from the armed forces. And how do you prove your allegiance to this narrative? By rolling up your sleeve. You'd have to be genuinely convinced of the existential threat posed by this virus to volunteer for an experimental vaccine for which no one, not the pharmaceutical giants, nor the government mandating its acceptance, is liable in cases, in case things go wrong. That is real faith. And that's the end of the thread. So why? Why mandate this for the military? His point is amazing. So that they don't have to admit that politicians and unaccountable public health officials messed up everybody's lives based on a lie and violated the law changing the election rules while they were doing it. Believe me. And th this is a point that my husband and I talk about quite often. If people needed this vaccine to survive, if everybody needed this vaccine to survive, they would get it. 
If there was a 70% fatality rate, people wouldn't care that it was experimental. But if not, what's it to you? It's people's choice. And again, don't give me that you're protecting others argument. Asymptomatic spread is basically nothing. And in any case, if the other person is vaxxed, don't you believe that you're safe if you're vaxxed? Regardless, it's incredibly brave, incredibly brave, especially considering the military's system of justice. Incredibly courageous for this naval officer to speak up. So thank you, sir, for your service to our country, not only in the military, but through this thread. Another thread that I recommend, highly recommend, it went viral and it's been read by others on air on their shows, um, is about the state of distrust in our government institutions leading up to and including the 2020 presidential election. If you haven't read it already, I highly, highly recommend it. You can find it on my Twitter or on my locals. It, uh, the username is martyrmade, M-A-R-T-Y-R-M-A-D-E. Highly recommend that thread as well. Uh, as you heard, the great and powerful Jay Hay says we are out of time for today. We have more to talk about, but you will have to tune in tomorrow to hear about that. In the meantime, think for yourself, use critical thoughts, reject critical theory, question authority, follow the facts, and do not let government or corporate wokeism or cultural Marxism or anybody bully you into being a sheep. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a glowing review. And thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. I am Liz Wheeler, and this is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Assistant editor, Michael Wall. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Post-production manager, Victoria Metzl. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler. Senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. And production assistant, Mickey Pisani. This has been a Soundfront production.